I'm Lisa Stone, and you're listening to Parenting Aces. Welcome to season 11 of the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm starting with Danielle McNamara, our guest for this week's episode. And for those of you who don't know Danielle, she is the former head women's tennis coach at Yale University and the University of Texas, is a former college tennis player herself at University of Michigan, and just an all-around amazing human being. And I'm so excited to have her here with us this week to talk about not only her history in the sport, but her ideas now that she is the mom to two young children who love sports, her ideas about what tennis needs to do to continue to attract children to the game and to keep them in the game long term. Recently, Danielle published a paper on medium.com, which we will link to in the show notes on Parenting Aces. And I urge you all to give that a read. She lays out very clearly her ideas on why tennis is losing out on so many young athletes and what needs to happen to bring those athletes and keep those athletes in the game. In this week's episode, we do a lot of chatting about some ideas, including ideas just kind of off the cuff that came up as we were talking. So I'm excited to hear your feedback and hope you'll leave us comments on the show notes on ParentingAces.com or wherever you consume the Parenting Aces podcast. So for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode with Danielle McNamara. Danielle McNamara, thank you so much for joining us on the Parenting Aces podcast. It's a pleasure to meet you finally. Oh, thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Yeah. So as I mentioned in the intro, you've got an incredible resume in tennis, and I would love for you to give our audience a little bit deeper look at your tennis story, how you got started and, you know, all of your involvement throughout the different stages of the sport. Yeah, sure thing. Um, So I grew up in a small town in the middle of nowhere, really, in Massachusetts. Um, And as a kid, played all kinds of sports. Um, Tennis was one of them. I think I started at about maybe age eight. Um, There was a club maybe a mile down the road from my house that offered tennis lessons. And so my parents thought, you know what, let's just her into those and see see if she likes it my dad is a recreational tennis player my mom really never played much tennis but um so so i started in lessons just like i said down the street and and really enjoyed it and i think kind of caught on quickly and um the coaches there were encouraging my parents to you know if i liked it to kind of stick with it and maybe um you know intensify the the playing i was doing as i got a little bit older and so by about the age 10, I, uh, I think I chose sort of tennis as my sport, if you will, um, and really focused in a lot, um, you know, private lessons and, and traveling to tournaments and, and New England is the section that I played, obviously. So, um, you know, as, as I improved, then that became more national tournaments and traveling to, you know, the big events throughout the year um, and really just absolutely like fell in love with the sport. So, um I played all the way through, you know, junior, junior tennis, the pathway that so many players, you know, take and, and ultimately in high school, you know, realized I really wanted to play in college and, um, and went through the recruiting process. Uh, You know, back then, I feel like you used to actually take official visits to kind of figure out where you wanted to go and the unofficial visit, like wasn't really a thing. And 
phone calls were kind of the way you got to know coaches. And I just had an amazing experience. I looked at schools all over the country um, from small private schools to big public schools, but I really just absolutely fell in love with the University of Michigan, which was my last official visit. Actually, I kind of had, I pictured myself somewhere else prior to that visit, took the visit. And by the time I left 48 hours later, um, I just knew Ann Arbor and, and that program and that school was like the perfect fit for me. So I was really, really lucky that that ended up working out and I was offered a scholarship to go play there and took it in a heartbeat. Um, and yeah, so I started college in 1996 in the fall in Ann Arbor and um, moved out there at age 17 on my own and, <laughs> you know, did a lot of learning, made a lot of mistakes, but had an incredible experience there. I played for Bitsy Ritt for the four years that I played and um, just, I mean, I, I, it was the best time of my life. I mean, I learned so much. I ended up getting an amazing education and um, I knew that when I left or when my playing days were over, I had always wanted to play after college as well, which I did do for a little while. But college tennis for me, I just had such an incredible experience that I knew someday, somehow I wanted to get back to it <laughs> as a coach. And so that was kind of the plan. Um, I graduated. I took five years to graduate because um, I changed my major and that took a while to kind of catch up. Um, so I ended up double majoring, graduated in 2001, played, like I said, I moved back home to, to the Boston area. My coach was still here. I trained with him and, and played on the tour for about a year and a half, um, at which point I decided I, I kind of wanted to get into coaching. And um, I got a call. My co college coach, Coach Bitsy, was recruiting out in um, at Clay Courts, I think, and she knew that I was looking to get into college coaching. And she called me and said, um, "You know, I heard Yale is looking for an assistant coach." Um, at the time, I was up on an island off the coast of Maine, like just doing a summer a summer tennis thing. And uh, and she and she told me who they hired as the head coach it was an interim head coach, um, Katie Granson. And she said, you know, you probably should give her a call. And so I did. I reached out. And before I knew it, I was driving from Maine down to New Haven to interview with Katie, um, you know, just kind of a one day thing, had a great day with her. And by the time I was like barely on 91 North coming home, my phone rang and Katie said, will you will you come? Will you be the assistant? And <laughs> I was so excited. Um, I said yes. And it was you know, important for me to kind of be close to home if possible. So Connecticut was great, obviously an amazing school. And, and I loved Katie and the program. So I came in as an assistant coach. That was my, my first experience. And um, I was the assistant for one year when Katie decided she was about to get married and was going to be moving um, to Pennsylvania. So the head job opened up at Yale um, one year into my, my time there, and I decided to apply for it, even though I had very little experience. Um, I, I think that year being in the program kind of showed me, it gave me a good sense, I felt like, of where things could go and how we would do it. And I think that was um, really important for me to, to be able to articulate in the interview process. And so, you know, I managed to trick someone into hiring a 26 year old, uh, one year of experience had a coach to be their head coach. And, and that was kind of the start for me, um, in coaching. I just loved it. And I was at Yale. Um, I was at Yale for eight years as the head coach and had an amazing experience. 
um, learned a ton, worked with some incredible people and, and players, and um, and then decided in let's see the the summer of 2014, or actually it was the end of the academic year, the 2013-14 academic year, I, I made a decision with my husband just as a family decision that I was going to step down from coaching. I We had a young child, a three-year-old, and I was due with our second child that August. And it just felt like a lot <laughs> um, at that point. And so stepped away like June and, um, you know, I was just kind of going about my summer and I got, um, a call from the university of Texas and they were hiring a head coach. Um, and you know, that was a, that was a call that I just, I had to take. Um, <laughs> and so anyways, long story short, I, um, I was so far along in my pregnancy that I couldn't even fly to Austin. So I met the athletic director in the airport at Hartford and um, the day before giving birth, I was offered the job, uh, gave birth to my son, and then had to make, you know, made this big decision. My husband is a saint, and we just decided to go for it. Went down to Texas, uh, you know, the four of us at that point, and um, just again for for personal reasons, it was it was just not uh, not a great time in my life to be taking on such a huge new role, um, you know, for all of us. And so we actually came back to New Haven about a year later. Um, and, uh, I was a stay-at-home mom for a year <laughs> and that was interesting. Um, I learned a lot there. It was so great to have that time with my kids, but I desperately missed, uh, being in college tennis. And I was just so fortunate that my old job, the Yale job opened up again in, uh, 2016, and I was in the area and um, my husband, again, was really supportive and just said, well, if you really want to go for it, go for it. And the athletic director that I had worked for those first eight years hired me back in 2016. And and so, yeah, so I coached there for the last five years and and um, this past summer, um, you know, stepped down and I'm now at home with my kids who are now 10 and seven, which is crazy. Um and doing a little bit of consulting with the ITA on a couple of projects with them, which has been great. Um, and so that's kind of my story and, and how I got to where I am. <laughs> and you look like you're 20. So ah. it's <laughs> mind boggling that you've had all this experience, but how cool that you've had all this experience. And now your mom to these two young kids who are getting involved in sports themselves. Right. And it's opened your eyes to a whole different way of doing things, I think, as evidence. And let me just back up a second. As I mentioned in the in the intro, I came across Danielle because of a tweet that she posted. And I think somebody retweeted and we kind of started engaging. And then I went and read this article that you wrote on Medium about how tennis has fallen behind in terms of attracting new players and specifically young children to the sport. So can you tell us a little bit about the, your children's involvement in soccer and like, what was the aha moment for you? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So my kids, um, they love sports. They've uh, played many different sports, um, already. And, um, I really, really became introduced to youth soccer today um, through my son who began playing in the fall of 2020. 
um, in our town, just through our local like park and rec um, soccer program. And um, I, I, as I wrote in the paper, I'll, I'll never forget uh, pulling into, so our soccer games, all the soccer games were played at the middle school in our town. And it has just a massive a number of fields, but right next to the fields are the tennis courts. There's mm-hmm. six in a row. And I remember it was like a beautiful fall day and we pulled in and I could not believe the number of parents and young children and volunteer coaches that, I mean, we couldn't even find a parking space. It was as far as you could see young boys and girls just so excited running down for their games. And it really kind of bothered me that I was sitting there watching. And I I loved that all these kids were enjoying themselves playing soccer, but I, I kept, I find myself looking up at the tennis courts, just thinking like why they were empty. And I mm-hmm. said, well, I'm thinking, why can't we do something about this? Like, why, w- why can't some of these kids be up there playing tennis too, you know, and having yeah. just as much fun. And, um, and it just got me thinking a lot. So I actually sort of started working on this paper a little bit that long ago. And just, it's been kind of unfolding over the last year or so. Um, But that was kind of my initial, like, let me look into this. Let me, let me really spend some time thinking about this and and what might, you know, work, what what changes might be effective. So it's funny because several years ago, I did the same deep dive into junior golf and Mm -hmm. what can tennis learn from junior golf? And you and I came to a lot of the same conclusions. So I, Something is definitely missing in tennis in terms of not just attracting, but keeping these young kids excited to play and grow and learn through the sport. I want you to go through, you you mentioned four specific features that you see in other youth sports that seem to be missing from tennis. So I'd love for you, if you don't mind, to go through those. And the first one that you mentioned is little to no travel. And we know junior tennis is so flipping expensive for families because every weekend you hop in the car or hop on a plane, God forbid, and have to go travel to a tournament, stay in a hotel, eat in restaurants, rent a car maybe. Right. And, you know, like this, you've spent a thousand dollars. Right. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. So exactly. The, the main, one of the main points of the paper was that when I really observed like how the introductory youth soccer, basketball and baseball programs are run seemingly across America, Mm -hmm. certainly where where we are, um, there are these four characteristics and one of them is little to no travel. So I, um, you know, for a parent who just wants their child to try a sport, they're probably not going to be willing, not, not enough of them are going to be willing to do all the things that you just said to be able to expose their kid and just give it a try. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And in baseball, basketball, and soccer, you know, sports who are performing much better with youth sports participation numbers than tennis in the U S there is very, very little to no travel. So it, it is through maybe just your town program. Like we have, I live in Hamden, Connecticut. There's Hamden, you know, youth soccer, there's Hamden youth baseball and these organizations that exist that are just, they're just right here. They're right here in my own town. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that makes, it's one of the barriers to entry. I feel like that these sports kind of overcome right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is, is low cost. So yeah. for, um, for the youth soccer program that I was referring to that my son did, it was a U8 
Um, I want to say it was like 13 weeks. It was one practice, one one hour practice and one one hour game on the weekend. He received a uniform, a full uniform, and um, it cost $100. Now, on the other hand, my daughter, who played tennis for a while, um, we spent at a private club almost $1,000 for her to do a U8 red ball one hour clinic. And that didn't even include the match play. And we drove 45 minutes to get there. Mm. Um, And so, you know, that, that was, that was the best we could find her for a U8 red ball introductory program in our area. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's one major, major barrier. And then the other. So, so hang on. So let me just summarize that. So, (laughs) so soccer was a hundred dollars for one practice, one game and a uniform. Mm-hmm. Tennis was a thousand dollars for one practice, right? Yeah. No equipment, no uniform, right. no competition. Right. right. Exactly. If we want the same to, time period. Yes. Yeah. And for the same age group. Um, right. Exactly. Now, um, the, so the, one of the third, the third feature, um, that I talk about, or the, this concept is just this like idea that organized competition is a key component very early on in soccer, basketball, and baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, so as evidenced by the soccer game um, that I was talking about. So they played games immediately. Um, you know, first week, there's competition. Basketball, there's competition. My son's playing basketball this winter. He's on a team. They practice once a week. There's, you know, competition on the weekends. And and this isn't like beautiful soccer or beautiful basketball, you know, I'm not, you know, I recognize that tennis is a little bit more difficult for children to pick up and to be able to actually maybe have that rally. And this is one of the counter arguments that I've come across. Sure. And, and I say, well, you know, when I watch my son play soccer, it's not beautiful. It's It's a swarm of bees chasing a ball, but do they have fun? They love it. And similarly for tennis, I think that you could teach uh, a similarly aged kid, seven years old or so, and I think you could get them to the point where they could have maybe a a one or two or three shot rally, maybe not with a serve, maybe it's a drop hit to get it going. Not beautiful tennis, but I think they could have a little bit of competition on a 36 foot court with a red ball pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. Would it well, be pretty? That, no, they'd have fun, you know. But that's that was the the argument behind introducing the red, orange, green, yellow pathway in the US, the net generation pathway, right? right. That we're gonna engage the kids, we're gonna put these smaller rackets, slower balls, shorter courts at their disposal, so they have success very quickly in the sport. Right. But what are you seeing has happened with that? I think that what I see at least is where there might be town-based offerings for tennis. It doesn't, um, it's, it's not, they're not structured. These programs aren't structured in a way that kids find them exciting and want to come back. Mm-hmm. So they might try it, but they're not going to come back often enough because there isn't this organized competition and because there isn't any kind of a team element to it, like soccer and basketball. I believe that you could, I, I, I do think tennis is slightly different. Um, and we can get into this uh, with, you know, the difference between a strictly parent volunteer based 
sport versus tennis, which I don't think can necessarily be strictly volunteer parent based with someone who has little to no tennis experience. Mm -hmm. But I do think that um, you can have organized competition and a team element in uh, a youth based as young as red ball U8, um, you know, programming that just doesn't exist. I, I ran, I ran a U10 um, JTT team, mm-hmm. uh, mainly because the only other option. So I, I think USTA would argue, well, JTT is our team competition that we offer that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I would say, well, at least where we are. JTT- and hang on one second. Let me just say JTT junior team tennis yes. for those not yes. familiar. Right. JTT for us in our area. And I, I, you know, I'm not sure if this is true across the country, but you pretty much have to go to a private club if you want to play junior team tennis, USTA, Mm -hmm. which is very expensive. And now we're traveling again. Um, And my daughter did do that for the U8 group that I was talking about the 45 minutes away, that club, she did join their U8 JTT. And they actually, they won the state championship, which was awesome. But I, I mean, we traveled everywhere. And it was an extra cost on top of that thousand dollars. So when she got to U10, I said, you know what, I'm going to coach this team and I'm going to run it through our town park and rec, which we were the only team in all of new England that wasn't out of a private club. We were the only team. Yes. And we were traveling all the way down to Fairfield County. We were going up to Guilford and Madison. I mean, 45 minutes, no problem for these matches. Wow. Um, And we were just lucky that our town let us use the public courts. And when we would have practice, um, parents would come up left and right, um, just saying, what, like, what is this? How do I get my kid involved in this? And at the time, I, I just couldn't take any more kids on. But I would argue that there's not a lack of interest, parents' interest in getting their kids to play tennis. I don't think that's the problem. I just don't think that we have the model right now. Tennis doesn't have the model where kids can easily get into the sport and then that it is set up for them to want to come back. Right. And I I would say, you know, as an adjunct to everything you've just said, Danielle, that we're really good at setting up one-off events like these Mm -hmm. one-day clinics where a local USTA and JTL chapter or, um, you know, one of the local community tennis um, associations comes in Mm -hmm. and brings in rackets, brings in balls, brings in portable nets, you know, offers coaching, has the kids hit around and the kids have a blast. And then at the end of the two hours or whatever it is, the organization packs up all the stuff, yeah. leaves never to be seen again. Right. Right. Exactly. And I think that one thing I've noticed is the USTA does have, um, you know, these uh, nonprofit organizations like the Community Tennis Associations and the NJTLs, which are amazing, well-needed For programs. Sure. Absolutely. But they serve a very different mission than what we're talking about, which is strictly growing the game, like strictly growing the game and getting as many kids as possible playing tennis and keeping as many as we can in the game once they start. Mm -hmm. And so I think that although those are amazing organizations, they're not necessarily the answer to the question of how do we grow this game as much as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think it's a very different mission. Um, but yeah, so, you know, the thing that I keep coming back to is, um, this idea of 
the U or an, an organization in the tennis ecosystem that has the means that like, so I'm the, I'll use the USTA for example, but it doesn't have to be them. You know, mm -hmm. it could be another organization out there that has the means or even a small group of, you know, people, individuals that say, yes, like I, I believe in this mission and we're going to make this happen. But uh, an organization that has access to to the sort of the, the necessities of getting something off the ground in your community, getting a tennis program up and running. You know, there are things that just have to happen. Like you need to have insurance. You know, you, you probably want to have a website. You're going to have to market all of these, like starting this small business is, is a significant amount of work. But if yes. an organization in the ecosystem of tennis could just make this process as simple as possible for someone who said to themselves, I would like to do this. And maybe it could even be a for-profit model. Sure. You, know, you could make a small, you know, an amount of money on the, on the side, if you wanted, if you were a high school tennis coach or, or a retired coach or a, a volunteer or assistant college coach, you know, um, you could have a for-profit model where the larger, organization leverages their resources and says, Hey, like, we're going to make it as easy as possible for you to get all the things you need to get this business up and running. Yeah. And now you go implement these programs. I think the, um, net generation is a huge step in the right direction. I think that, 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 that is kind of the curriculum, but now it needs to go be executed on the ground in these like local towns and, and park and rec, um, programs. So, so, so let's dive a little deeper into that because I'm all about not just providing, you know, information around the problem, but also coming up with a solution that people can take action on. And, yeah. you know, this is the start of a new year. It's a great time to make a commitment to change. And, mm -hmm. you know, everybody's all about their new year's resolutions, Let's resolve to do something to attract and retain more young kids in our sport yep. through this model that you've laid out so clearly, Danielle. I mean, you have done a huge amount of the work already, and it seems to me that if you were to take this to USTA, Universal Tennis, PTR, USPTA, one of those organizations should be able to offer the infrastructure items that you're talking yeah. about, like the insurance, like the website, like the marketing. Mm -hmm. And then it's all about creating a social network, right, yeah. to help each other. So let's say, Danielle, you're running a program in your town. I'm running a program in my town across the country, but we have a Facebook group, for example, or a discord mm -hmm. or a Twitch channel or somewhere where we can connect and share experiences and seek right. information and support. I mean, this is a no brainer to me. Right. And so the, the challenge is going to be a, the funding, which mm -hmm. you've alluded to be getting the, the bigger organization to buy in and start work on this right. and then see to recruit the local yep. coach. And yep. as you've said, we, we can't necessarily follow the soccer or baseball or basketball model where you have parent volunteers 
because not all parents have experience playing the sport and you have to have some basic understanding of how tennis works. right? Right. Right. Exactly. So in your, you know, perfect world, who is running each of these local community programs? Yeah. So I think that I think in my perfect world, I would love to see some organizations step up and say, we're going to pilot this in a few parts of the country for a while and see how it goes and see, see if this works, you know, see if this model really gets some traction, really track the data and let's see, um, get, get the feedback. So the first step in terms of like identifying potential providers in a community, you know, might be, um, you know, people like I mentioned. So, so identifying those, um, you know, whether it's a college player, a college graduate, college tennis player, um, high school coaches in the area. And I would even add this, that one thing I've noticed, um, in the soccer world that could be an interesting thing for tennis to consider is there are these private sort of premier team, premier clubs for soccer in our area. Mm -hmm. Lots of them. They're growing like crazy. And what they've done a really great job of doing is they will take their sort of premier club coaches and they will, they will be the ones who go into the local community uh, park and rec type offerings, and they will offer to coach those for the town. So, you know, I don't know the numbers on all of this, but my guess is that the reason that they do that is because when, when that kid, like, for example, my son, when he went and, you know, if he did a clinic or something through my town, he's going to be taught by the coaches from that private club. Right. So that if down the road, he wants to take his soccer a little bit further, or he just wants to do more in the winter when soccer is harder to play, guess where he's going to that private club. And that's where he's going to do that because yeah. that's what we know. Right. And I think that could be another interesting, that's uh, sort of a side tangent, but an interesting thing for private tennis clubs to think about. Um, in terms of maybe maybe that would be interesting for them to send uh, uh, some of their pros into the community and to start developing those relationships. And then again, similarly, when winter comes around or when a child gets to the point developmentally, they want to step it up a notch, they're going to their club. Yeah. Um, Brilliant. But yeah, I think there are a lot of, lot of potential um, providers in the community. And I think that, yeah, that, that's the step one would be to identify who can run this Um, I mean, I can think of, you know, take myself, for example, I would love to run one of these. I don't have the time, um, or the resources to do all the work to get this thing off the ground, but if it was really simple for me, I would absolutely do it. And I would, um, execute the the plan, um, as best I could and have the competition and have the teams. I mean, it could be, it could be so cool. Like you could give these kids Uh, their team jersey and they show up on Saturday to play tennis as well as soccer or in place of soccer. I don't know, but they're playing tennis and they're on their team and they're playing another team from their town every week. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. I think it just could, I know what my kids love and I, and I don't think they're unique. (laughs) I think that kids love to compete and they love to be on teams. Yeah. 
Um, Without a doubt. And and I'm wondering just, you know, as you're talking, my wheels are spinning um, and I'm thinking about the Aspen Institute and would they be a good partner in this? Because their mission is also to get children more active through sport. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe this is something to take to the Aspen Institute and say, hey, you know, tennis needs to look more like these other sports Mm -hmm. at the introductory level. And we feel like we've got a model outlined here that is easily executed as long as these main pieces are put in place, meaning, you know, the marketing piece, the insurance piece. Etc. Even partnering, you know, with one of the big tennis retailers to do discounted jerseys like they do for junior team tennis. I I mean, I used to run a middle school tennis league and, you know, we got all of our team uniforms through USTA's apparel partner and at a great discount. So setting something up like that, I think, you know, would be so great. And my goodness, I I think you're onto something really huge here, and it, I don't know that USTA is going to take this on because while their stated mission is growing tennis, I don't really think that's where their heart lies. I think their heart lies with creating champions and running the U.S. Open. And um, while I would like to think that they understand that growing tennis at the grassroots level leads to those other things. I don't think they truly do get it or are Mm -hmm. willing to put the resources behind it. So I think it's going to take a different organization. And I think it's going to take kind of thinking outside the box in terms of who would that ideal organization be? And maybe it's not even a tennis organization. Maybe it's an insurance company, (laughs) you know, seriously. I mean, you know, childhood obesity is a huge problem in this country and Mm -hmm. and a really expensive problem. Yeah. So, so maybe it's one of the big insurance companies who says, Hey, we'll, we'll get behind this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, I think that just being able to try it in a few places would be, I think a great first step, Mm -hmm. um, and see what happens. Uh, I think that's the only way we're going to know. Um, but you're right. Thinking outside the box, that's, you know, probably what, what we should be doing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you are doing that. So it's just a matter of identifying the partners, right? Right. So, so for you, I mean, are you committed to working on this and, and working with others who are interested in implementing this in different communities? Because I'm just thinking for the Parenting Aces audience, you know, if people wanted to get involved in this, so many of our parents grew up playing tennis, Mm -hmm. so they would be the perfect leaders in their local communities to get something like this off the ground, especially if it's one practice a week, one one match a week. It's not a huge time commitment once it's going. And once you get one parent willing to step up and say, hey, I'll lead the charge and then they pull in, you know, the other parents that they've met through their mm-hmm. child's tournament experience or through their child's clinics at their club. All of a sudden, you've got a really nice group of adults leading the charge for a growing number of kids that haven't ever thought about playing tennis. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely be interested. I, th- I think the key is having that larger larger component with the resources that mm-hmm. was backing this. Um 
But if there was that available and they said, hey, would you help us, you know, spearhead this or start a few pilot programs or whatever the case may be, I would I would love to. I think the key is just getting the, you know, getting access to the support and the financial support that we would yeah. need to, to run this in a few places. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I I mean to to think about what tennis has done for me. Um I mean, it has literally shaped every part of my life. When I look back on it, not to sound cheesy, but I mean, without tennis, I would not, I would not be the person I am not even close and had the amazing experiences that I've had. And so I would, you know, I'm passionate about this. And I think that, um, you know, I want to see more kids playing tennis. I want, I want to see those courts filled and, and them having a great time and, and really just growing the game in these, in, in our, in our towns and our parks. I mean, I think this is, this is really where we should be starting. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm already thinking that, you know, when this podcast goes live, I will be sending it not just to our national governing body, but to insurance companies, to the Aspen Institute, um, to parks and rec organizations, even as far up as the national health department, because I feel like this is something that, you know, while I don't think any of us wants to see the national government involved in running youth sports, um, certainly they have resources available through grants and, and experts and the Mm -hmm. like that could help fund this and promote it at the Mm -hmm. very least. So um, I think you know, the challenge at this point is, as, as you said, to find that organization or yeah. group of organizations to put up the money and the support. And then the next step would be to identify a leader in the local communities to pilot this and get it off the ground. But to me, that's the easy part. The second yeah. step, the yeah, first I step agree. is, is the big challenge, right? <laughs> Agreed. Yes. So, so I'm going to just put the call out to all of you listening or watching this and say that if you have a connection at an organization that you feel would be a good fit to help launch Danielle's initiative, and I'm, I'm putting a lot of pressure on you now, Danielle, it's, it's become <laughs> your initiative now, um, to please reach out to me or reach out to Danielle, and Danielle's contact information will be in the show notes. Um, make sure you read her Medium article. That link will be in the show notes as well, and share that with mm-hmm. the organizations, because this to me is it, it's a no-brainer but it's not a no worker. It's There's a lot of stuff that's got to happen to make this successful, but our community is very well connected out there. So I'm, I'm putting the call out to all of you watching and listening to put your thinking cap on and maybe identify one or two organizations or individuals that you feel would get behind this and help Danielle and help Parenting Aces um, to make this come to life. Because I think, you know, if we could set a goal for 2022, Danielle, of piloting your initiative in, let's say, five cities, five Mm -hmm. communities around Mm -hmm. the U.S., I think that would be enough of a pilot program to provide proof of concept and be able to take it on a, on a larger, you know, to a larger market and, and grow it. Um, Do you agree? 
Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think I've been watching be... a lot of Shark Tank. Can you tell? Yeah, that sounded really good. <laughs> it sounded very Shark Tanky. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I just feel like you put so much energy into creating this paper, and I I want to see it maintain the traction that it's already getting and move beyond just an article on medium.com, move beyond just a discussion on Twitter and on the Parenting Aces podcast into actuality. And, you know, let's bring tennis to these kids. Let's show them how fun it can be. And Listen, I hear from parents all the time. Why don't we have more team events for our kids? That's what our kids really want to do. The fraction, you know, is so minuscule of kids that are going to go on to make a living playing at the professional level. But Mm -hmm. the number of kids who are positively impacted through our sport, just like you're talking about, Danielle, is enormous. And why wouldn't we want? more kids involved and more kids benefiting from all the gifts that tennis has to give. Yeah. A hundred percent. No, I agree. And I, I, I really appreciate you, you know, having me on because when I put the, when I wrote the article and then put it out there at first, it was like, let's just get the conversation going. And sure. so I appreciate this um, tremendously. And, and yeah, I, I agree. I think putting it into action in five cities would be amazing. And I, I really do believe that if we had these four elements in in the model that mm-hmm. executed really well, I, I would be, I'm confident that it would be really successful. Kids would want to play and it would grow the game and, and we would retain them. And I think that's the key. Right. I So I'm going to, again, put the challenge out there to our audience that if you have a connection that can help Danielle get this off the ground, please share that with her through her contact in the show notes. If you are interested in running a program in your local community, also reach out to Danielle because I think it's important to start creating a list of volunteers that would be interested or it doesn't even have to be volunteers. You can turn this into a small business. Nobody has a problem with you making money from this, right? I mean, you know, tennis is expensive. So no, I I agree. And and I think that it doesn't have to be a for-profit model, but it certainly could be. And I think that that might attract you know, um, some experienced tennis coaches who could sort of be the one that oversees the program. I I still think parent volunteers are a very important part of this. I think a parent could very easily with with zero tennis experience, roll a ball or toss a ball in a lesson, or even just, you know, keep things organized and keep kids in, you know, keep kids focused, um, at young ages. We all know that parents are needed for that. Yeah. But, um, but I think that if you had that one main tennis coach, at least that was there kind of overseeing and floating and making sure, you know what, they're not hitting that serve with the pancake grip. They have the proper, that they're learning the proper technique early on. Um, I think the combination of the two, the parent volunteer and the more experienced tennis um, player or coach, I think that's where tennis can really, um, you know, just be really successful. Me too. And I am committing Parenting Aces to help you however you need, including, you know, if you want to create maybe some parent education, little short videos um, for the parent volunteers, things that, you know, what do you need to know to participate in this as a parent volunteer? How do you get involved in your local program? All of that. I would love to help create that content with you and, 
you know, disseminate it through our channels. And I just think this is a huge opportunity for the sport. And again, it's January. Let's get this going. Let's make a commitment in 2022 to at least pilot this in a few communities around the country and identify those that partner or those partners that can be the financial source behind all of it. And let's get it going. I I, I just, I love it. I mean, I read the paper and I was like, yes. <laughs> Uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for taking the time and being so thoughtful in your approach to what needs to happen and really laying out very clearly the steps that we need to take to continue to attract new families, new children to our sport and, and again, help them reap the benefits of playing the great game of tennis. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Great. To my audience, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, by a tennis parent. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at ParentingAces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.